Uh, my name's Daniel, one of the pastors here at Deer Creek. Great to have you all. Uh, I am a little wet. There was backsplash there, for sure. Um, <laughs> that was not expected. Um, uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. So if you're, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there is about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, the first book of the New Testament, which is Matthew. You're looking for the book of Romans. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. If you're trying to find it, I highly encourage you to have a Bible with you. If you don't have one, you can actually get one out here in our lobby area on the next steps table. So I'd encourage you to go and grab that. I uh, just want to give, before we jump into our passage and our teaching this morning, just want to give an update. If you weren't here last week, uh, we had the kind of uh, bittersweet news that Trevor Cook, who is our youth pastor, he's actually taken a new position. He's moving down to uh, Tucson, Arizona, where he's originally from, and him and his wife, Melissa, have received an opportunity there to minister in his hometown. Uh, so that means that's good news, but the bad news is he's leaving here as our youth pastor. And I just wanted to let you know, in case you weren't here last week, um, that we do have several key volunteers who are kind of holding the, holding the ranks down in the youth ministry. Uh, two of them, Tyler Brinks and Damian Clausing, are actually elders at our church. And so our encouragement just in this season would be, hey, will you pray for us? Will you pray that God would bring us the right person? Um, and as we kind of start the interview process and continue an interview process with some people that we've already talked to, that God would direct the right person here. So we ask that you would do that. So Romans chapter 8, beginning uh, in verse 26 through 30, is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we've been calling this series uh, Basic Christianity. Uh, this study through Romans, uh, has, we've kind of given it that title because Paul, who's the author of this letter, in this letter, writing to a church he'd never met before, is really outlining the basics of what it means to follow Jesus. He's giving us a basic outline of what Christianity is and what Christians believe. And you can think of this a lot like high school algebra, right? If you took algebra in high school, I failed it my very first time that I took it, but I remember very uh, few things. I remember this. Remember, algebra begins with y equals mx plus b. Do you remember that? That's the foundation. That's the foundation. And once you have that basis, you can actually build upon that and expand into more uh, sophisticated forms of mathematics like trigonometry and, and calculus. And in the same way, Romans, this book written by Paul, meant to do that very thing, to lay down the foundational beliefs of what it means to follow Jesus. And now some of you might be asking, well, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we study truth and we study beliefs and we study doctrine and we study teachings, all of which are very prominent in the book of Romans? And that's a fair question. But I want you to notice there's kind of an assumption in that question. And the assumption is this, that doctrine, truth, and beliefs are somehow disconnected from the practical and relevant things in our life. The assumption is that doctrine and truth don't have anything to do with the relevant concerns that we have in our day-to-day -day life Monday through Sunday. But think of an analogy this way. Anybody here work at Lockheed Martin? Got to have a few, right? Okay, nobody. All right, so this, this will be a pretty brutal analogy, so bear with me. You work in the space division at Lockheed Martin, 
It's a great responsibility, right? Say you're tasked with building a military satellite. You have to know a lot of truths in order to do that well, right? You need to know a huge amount of complex math. You need to know a lot about physics. You have to know a lot about electrical engineering and a whole host of other things. Right? You have to have that basis of knowledge. But imagine if you said your first day on the job, you know what, all of that stuff is impractical. All of that stuff is irrelevant. After all, it's just tinfoil and solar panels. That's all that a, a satellite is. And we just launch the thing up there and let's see what happens. <laughs> well, let me ask you, what would happen? Well, first, you would be fired, guaranteed. <laughs> guaranteed, first day on the job. Fired faster than you could say Lockheed Martin. But the second thing is, is you would be ill-equipped to handle the practical and relevant concerns that go on once you launch that satellite up into space. And the same thing is true with Christianity, right? If you don't know beliefs about God, beliefs about Jesus, beliefs about the Bible, beliefs about sin, beliefs about salvation... And terms that we're going to be talking about today, terms like sanctification and glorification, these real dense theological terms, if you don't know those things, that foundational knowledge base, then you will be very ill-equipped to handle the practical things of your faith as they come on a day-to-day -day basis. I guarantee that. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, we're going to read our passage. We've been studying Romans now for several months. But we're going to be looking at these verses that kind of end chapter 8, which is the first real main section of Paul's letter to the Romans. So beginning in verse 27, or sorry, verse 26, let's read together. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. For he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your scriptures. We thank you that you've given us your word. And we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us pray as we ought and to intercede on our behalf. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to receive this teaching. We pray that you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would also open our hearts to receive this message and that it would be a deep comfort to us because we know that that's what Paul intended in these words. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I was uh, attending a small group here at Deer Creek a couple of weeks ago, probably about a month or so ago, and I heard this story from somebody in our congregation. His name is Bill. Bill's a chaplain, and he goes and visits numerous uh, hospitals here in the Denver metro area. And he was telling this story about how he went into a lady's hospital room and sometimes he'll just go in and, you know, he'll ask if people want prayer and oftentimes people will invite him in. And he went into this lady's uh, hospital room and was asking her for prayer and bit by bit her story started to come out and toward the tail end of her story she said, 
you know, I'm really excited because in a couple days I get to go home. And so Bill, asking her a couple of questions, asking her where she was from, asking her where she was going home to, says, no, 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 you don't understand. In a couple days I'm going to hospice care. See, she was a Christian and she wasn't talking about her home, lowercase h, here on earth. No, she was talking about her home eternally in heaven. And I share that story because that is indicative of kind of what Paul has been trying to argue really up to this point in the letter of Romans. Paul's been arguing that there's two realities in this world. So there's the reality of here in this world now, in this world which is characterized by deep suffering. In fact, just in a section earlier than the section that we just read in Romans chapter 8, the last sermon that I actually preached on Romans, Paul, in describing this world, used these terms. He said, this world is subjected to futility. Subjected to futility. He said, creation is under the bondage to corruption, meaning everything deteriorates. Everything dies. Everything has an expiration date. He even said this really wonderful image that this world as it stands right now is like a woman groaning in the pains of childbirth. And Paul, in verse 26 of this passage that we just read, he used another term for it. He said that this world is characterized by weakness. Did you catch that? This world is characterized by weakness. And you don't have to look very far, right, to prove that this world is characterized by weakness. In fact, our experience tells us that very fact. I want to share this. I got this from uh, another pastor who was referencing this. Uh, there was this document. It was actually signed back in 1974, so about 50 years ago. And it was signed by some of the greatest scholars throughout the United States. It was entitled The Humanist Manifesto. The Humanist Manifesto. And this was right on the brink of the technological revolution. And these scholars and these people who are in high academic cir circles had great optimism from where technology was going to bring us as a society. They wrote these words in the Humanist Manifesto. They said, quote, we have virtually conquered the planet, explored the moon, overcome the natural limits of travel and communication. We stand at the dawn of a new age. Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, markedly reduce disease, expand our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. A lot of optimism, right? Well, here we are, 50 years later. How have we done? How about this? How about the environment? Did you know 16 years ago, almost to this date, Hurricane Katrina made its way through the Gulf of Mexico and resulted, just in the New Orleans area, in 1,836 deaths. It accounted for $125 billion in damages. And that's not to mention all the people that were displaced and all the people that lost their jobs as a result of Hurricane Katrina. So, so much for controlling our environment. How about poverty? Have we drastically reduced poverty? Well, I looked up this statistic. Nearly half of the world, nearly half of the world still lives on less than $5.50 a month. A month. So, so much for eradicating po poverty. How about extended lifespan? 
Extended lifespan. Well, if you were just looking in the last five years, life expectancy in the developed West, this isn't the world as a whole, just in the developed West, the extended lifespan or the, the life expectancy has actually dropped for the first time since the 1970s. Isn't that amazing? So we're not getting older, healthier, wiser, more advanced. In fact, our technology is actually deteriorating us. In fact, a lot of scholars suggest that the reason that life expectancy has dropped is because of our rampant technological use that increases our levels of anxiety and stress, which leads to a whole host of other problems. So are we going from strength to strength to glory to glory, or is this world still characterized by weakness despite the fact that we have iPhones? I'd suggest that we are still under the bondage of corruption. We're still subjected to weakness. And the reason that I can say that with pretty much severe confidence or 100% confidence is because Paul says the reason that the world is the way that it is, the reason it's subjected to weakness, he actually told us a couple chapters before in the book of Romans. He said, because Adam, who was the first creature created by God, who had dominion over this world, which means he had stewardship, he had care. He was supposed to protect this world. We're told that Adam, who had dominion, fell into sin and introduced this principle of death into the world. Paul put it in these terms. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. See, what Paul is saying there is that Adam, instead of living by God's pattern in God's world, decided to live by his pattern as if this world was his world. And the result is miscarriage, mental health challenges, betrayal, abandonment, job loss, economic hardship, weariness, anxiety, in other words, weakness. Weakness. All of this is the result of a creation under the bondage of corruption because of Adam's sin. I like this quote from Aldous Huxley. He said, Maybe this world is another planet's hell. He was a very optimistic person, as you can tell. But that's not the only reality, okay? That's not the only reality. So Paul says, On the one hand, we have the reality of Adam, the, the, the first head of creation who resulted in sin and death and weakness. But there's another reality. It's the reality of another world which has been introduced by Jesus, another kingdom which has infiltrated this world. And that kingdom, that reality, is not marked by weakness, but it's marked by what the Bible calls glory. Glory. That is a world marked by life and forgiveness a world marked by joy and friendship with God, and it was all earned by Jesus' perfect life and death in our place on the cross. Jesus is the better Adam, the better representative, who has introduced life and forgiveness into this world. So one day we have the promise that all of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of this world now will one, be done, one day be done away with. So again, I'm going to bring you back to high school. You remember Venn diagrams, right? The two circles that overlap in the middle. Paul is saying, there was the old world, right? First circle, marked by sin and death and suffering. And then you have this new world, which Jesus has introduced. And we live right here in the middle, right here in the middle. 
between suffering and glory. And Paul makes it clear that one day suffering will give way to glory, weakness and death will give way to eternal life, sin will give way to righteousness, and the pattern of Adam will finally be turned to the pattern of Christ here, and that's our home. That's our home. So as we wait, as we live between suffering and glory, Paul wants to remind us of two things. It's the purpose of his uh, passage here in Romans chapter 8. He wants to remind us of two things. The first thing he wants to remind us of is what we do not know. He wants to remind us of what we do not know. That's verses 26 and 27. And then he wants to remind us of what we do know. That's verses 28 through 30. So let's dive right in. Paul first in this passage wants to remind all of us followers of Jesus wants to remind us of what we do not know. And Paul says, in the midst of weakness, in the midst of suffering, we do not know what to pray for. We don't know what to pray for. So verse 26, he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Now, I want you to notice something is very important. Notice what Paul says here in this verse. He does not say we do not know how to pray as we ought. He doesn't say we don't know how to pray. In fact, maybe this is true in your life. Suffering is often what prompts us to pray sometimes for the very first time. Most people, when they're suffering or they're under extreme duress, actually cry out to God for the very first time. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say we don't know how to pray in our suffering. No, he says our problem is what? We do not know what to pray for as we ought. Instead of praying for the right things, Paul is saying, we pray for the wrong things. Instead of praying for the things God wants us to pray about, we actually pray for the things that don't help us in the long term. They don't help us in our walk with God. And you see this all throughout the Bible, by the way. So James, who was actually the brother of Jesus, he wrote another letter in the New Testament And he put it this way. He was talking to a church and he says, you do not have, he's talking about prayer, asking God for things. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask wrongly. You don't know what to pray for as you ought. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. See, what James is saying, in other words, is instead of praying for what we need, what we should be praying for, oftentimes we pray and spend it on our passions. We pray for the things that only have this world in mind as if this world was the only reality that was going on in the universe without sight toward the future reality that's brought in Jesus. That's why James says, that this kind of praying is friendship with the world. It's friendship with this world, this reality, as if nothing else was true. And I do this all the time, by the way. Maybe you can resonate with this, right? Whenever I suffer, whenever I'm actually confronted with my weakness, like when I'm anxious, when I'm stressed, when there's turmoil at work or with my family, do you know what I usually pray for? I usually pray, God, remove this from me. Just get this out of the way. Like, remove this circumstance. I don't want to deal with this circumstance right now. Will you help me just get past this? Anybody else pray that way? I think that's pretty common, isn't it? 
God, remove my anxiety, remove my stress, remove my suffering. I don't want anything to do with it. I do not want it. So you probably hear my twins that are always crying over here. We have twins that are just about two years old. And I remember really for the first month one to month nine, I always wanted to be a really good husband who woke up in the middle of the night and helped, you know, my wife with the feedings, the 2 a.m. feedings and the 5 a.m. feedings. And I remember about a month into doing that, having these very distinct prayers come into my mind. The second that Jane would start crying or Annie would start crying, I remember saying, God, if you are real, (laughs) make that baby stop crying now for the love of all that is good. That's what I would pray for. I would pray for God, remove this from me. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. And if you examine those prayers, what is the main theme in all of those prayers? Well, the main theme in all of those prayers is exclusively on me, my concerns for sleep, my concerns in this world, now, right now. It was about my personal comfort, my personal happiness, my personal rest now. And my prayers expose this truth that I have a deep-seated friendship with this world where sleep is the most important thing. A deep-seated friendship with the world and an unhealthy love for and passion for this world, which incidentally turns out to be enmity against God. And I want to return to this point, so hold this in your mind for just a minute, because I'm going to return to this point. That This is not saying we can't pray for those type of concerns. In fact, God wants us to pray for those kind of concerns, okay? So just hold that in mind. I'm going to move on here. Paul reminds us that though we don't know what to pray for as we ought, God does help us in our weakness. So notice again in verse 26, look back at the passage. We're told the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And how does he help us? Well, verse 26 says that he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And then in verse 27, we're told that he intercedes according to the will of God. So that word is used twice, intercedes. That's what the Spirit does. He intercedes. He steps in for us. The Holy Spirit comes and does what we cannot do in our weakness. And he does this in two ways. The first, verse 26, he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. What this means is God sympathizes with us. He actually groans with us in our weakness. He has empathy for us. And the reason that God can do this is because God himself has experienced what we have experienced. And how do I know that? Well, remember that verse that we read at the beginning of this service when we were doing the confession of sin? It was Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Talking about Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes, For we do not have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, God in his great love for us sent his son to the world to become man, to sympathize with us. To realize what a sleepless sleepless night looks like. To bear our anxieties. To bear our fears. To bear our temptations. 
Jesus was tempted with sin. Forty days in the desert, without food, without drink, he was tempted by Satan himself. Jesus knew what it was like to lose a best friend. In fact, he lost his best friend, Lazarus, watched him die. He watched loved ones suffer. Peter's mother-in-law were told that she was laying sick for days, and Jesus watched her suffer. Jesus even knew what it was like to be betrayed, betrayed by one of his closest followers, whose name was Judas. And then ultimately, after Judas' betrayal, was betrayed and abandoned by all the rest of his followers, and he alone had to suffer agony and death on the cross. So Jesus knows our weakness. He knows all of it. And the point being that God interceded for us then in Jesus, and he also intercedes for us now by giving his spirit to us, the Holy Spirit, God himself, to sympathize, to intercede with us with groanings too deep for words. God knows our weakness. I, I saw this video on YouTube recently. It's about this uh, girl. She had this uh, condition called sudden alopecia, which sounds, it sounds really grave, but it just means hair loss. But she was really young, right? She was probably about 30 years old. And she would just have these chunks of hair start falling out from the top of her head. And so she made the decision that she was going to completely shave her head and just go completely bald, which would have been the natural result of alopecia anyway. So her husband starts shaving her head and does so. And about halfway through, she just breaks down and starts crying, realizing that she's losing her hair at 30 years old. And as she's crying... And as her husband's finishing up and he's holding back tears himself, as he finishes the last swipe with the razor, he turns the razor off, looks at her, turns the razor back on, and starts shaving his own head. He entered into her suffering with his great love for her, and he was willing to voluntarily take her pain, to look on her with sorrow. And we too have a great high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, our fears, our suffering in this weak, fallen reality that some people think is another planet's hell. Paul continues, verse 27, right? So he says, not only does the Spirit come, he sympathizes with us in our weakness, he enters in with groanings too deep for words, but verse 27, we're told that the Spirit intercedes in another way. We're told the Spirit also intercedes with us according to the will of God, according to the will of God and his purpose. See, even though our prayers tend toward our passions now for this world as if that's all there is, the Holy Spirit intercedes and helps us to pray that God's will would be carried out in our suffering. That God's purpose would be carried out through our weakness and that God's plan would be accomplished no matter what's happening to us. And this is crucial, by the way. This is crucial. Paul is not saying that it's inappropriate to pray for our immediate concerns like we talked about earlier. But what he's saying is that we need the Spirit's help to pray beyond our immediate concerns and to pray for the reality of the world that is to come and that Jesus is bringing. And to pray for God's greater purpose. Jesus is a perfect example of this, by the way. You might know the story. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed... We're told that he was 
with his disciples, his closest followers, and he went right before he was about to be arrested and go and to be crucified for our sins. We're told that he was in a garden. It was called the Garden of Olives. And we're told that Jesus fell on the ground and he was praying, knowing that he was about to go to the cross, knowing that he was about to suffer for sin. And he prayed these words. He cries out to God and says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to go through with this. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to bear the weight of the sin of the world. Remove this from me. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. See, not that God doesn't want to hear our prayers about sleepless nights or job loss or the betrayal of a friend, but he helps us and encourages us to pray for things that he wants to accomplish through that suffering and through that anxiety. And this is important because Paul issues this reminder to remind us of what the Bible makes clear, and that's this, that God has, God does, and God will in the future use suffering and weakness to accomplish his will for our lives. He will. He will do that in your life and in mine. God's will is that we will live for his eternal kingdom ruled by Jesus, this new creation to come. So he will do everything to bring us into that reality. I like this quote from Joni Erickson Tata. I think I probably shared this before. Joni uh, was a diver in high school. She was a phenomenal athlete, but she dove into a, a lake one time, landed on her head, fractured her vertebrae, and ended up paralyzed. And through a long life of suffering, but continuing to steadfastly follow the Lord, she said these words. She said, <clears throat> sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. See, sometimes God will allow suffering, even tragedy in our lives, to accomplish what he loves, which is eternal life and fellowship with you. That's what he's willing to do. Again, I just want to share a personal anecdote here. So uh, right before I came out to Colorado, we were raising a lot of money to come out here and plant a church, which was originally what I came out here to do. And we had to raise somewhere in the realm of like $500,000. It's a lot of money, right? Because we had to pay for our three years here at Deer Creek Church, and then we were going to go plant a church, and we had to have money to really launch our church for three years of, of self-support. And I, I remember the very first day before I was about to go and ask a first donor whether or not they would support us, I woke up at 12 o'clock in the middle of the night and I thought I was having a heart attack because it just, the weight came on me that, oh my goodness, I have to raise $500,000 and I don't have a good business proposal. <laughs> and so I had this massive panic attack and that would actually trigger a lot of this anxiety in my life where I had to constantly deal with these panic attacks and, and have to navigate them throughout my life. And what was slash what is God doing and all that? That's what I was asking. And I've come to realize, you know, God was allowing what he hates. He was allowing my suffering and my pain to accomplish something that he loves. See, because before I had panic attacks and sleepless, night, sleepless nights, I just thought sleep was something that I was owed. I thought, well, surely I, I'm owed sleep. Everybody deserves the right to sleep. 
Well, before panic attacks, too, I was apathetic toward others who struggled with anxiety and depression. Why don't you just try harder, I would say. Counseling's for idiots. That's what I would say. Now I'm grateful and thankful for sleep. I actually thank God intentionally when I wake up from a restful night. He's made me a more grateful person. Now I'm more compassionate and patient with those who are anxious and depressed because I've been there too. See, through suffering and praying, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will, in realization that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves, we're told the Spirit helps us and intercedes for us according to the will of God. And now second point. The second point's a little bit briefer than the first, I promise. Second point being this. Paul not only wants to remind us of what we don't know in the midst of suffering, but he also wants to remind us of what we do know. And this is more crucial than the first. He wants us to remind us what we do know. And we see it in verse 28, 29, and 30. Paul writes this. And we know definitively that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we know all things work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. And that raises a lot of questions. Namely, well, what does Paul mean by good? And what does Paul mean by all things? And let's ask those questions. So first, what does Paul mean by good? And there can be a lot of confusion here, right? Because a lot of people think, well, by good, Paul must mean that by following Jesus, we're going to be healthy, we're going to be wealthy, we're going to be prosperous, we're going to be fulfilled in our vocations. We're going to be satisfied in every realm of life. And if we're not, then there's something wrong with you. You either don't have enough faith or you don't have enough confidence in God or you're not trying hard enough. You're not praying hard enough. Some people actually teach this today. But notice, all you have to do is look at verse 29 to know what good Paul is talking about here. He doesn't mean health, wealth, and prosperity. No, by good, Paul says, we know that all things are for good for, because he predestined that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good God has in mind for you. That by following Jesus, you would actually be conformed to the image of Jesus. God actually had that purpose in mind even before you were born. That's what predestined means. And we're actually, just as another aside here, that's what we're going to be talking about next week. We're going to spend a good chunk of three weeks talking about predestination. So if you want to have theological debates, come next week, okay? So predestination next week. But the good that God predestined for you in following Jesus is that you would be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. Now, word conformed, right, literally just means to be formed with. So if you have an ice cube tray, that's the form. You pour water into it, put it into the freezer, and that water gets conformed to the form of the tray. The good Paul has in mind here is that you would be shaped, formed, and made more like the image of Jesus in every single thing that comes into your life. That's God's ultimate goal for your life. Jesus was humble. He wants you to be humble. So he'll bring suffering in order to force humility. Jesus was patient. 
So Jesus will actually put you in positions, sometimes on C470, where you're going to have to be patient. <laughs> Jesus was forgiving. Guess what? He will put you in positions where you have to forgive. And that's easier said than done. And now those are good things, right? Those are things we aspire to. Those are the things that we want to do. But here's the other thing. Jesus suffered. So you might share in his sufferings. And you might think, well, where is that? Well, it's in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus sacrificed himself. And we too are to be called to be living sacrifices by the mercy of God, to be presented to God as holy and acceptable to him. Sacrifice, suffering, all of that forms us and shapes us into the image of Jesus. There's actually a theological term for this. It's called sanctification. It means progressively becoming more and more and more like Jesus as you follow him in your lifelong walk with him. So we have this lifelong process of learning how to forgive our spouses when they say something bad about us. We have this lifelong process of confessing our pride and confessing that we weren't humble in a situation to our coworkers. We have this lifelong process of learning how to forgive and experience the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. That's this process that God is on with us. And there's an ultimate end goal for that. And it's called, in verse 30, glorification. It's the end of sanctification is glorification, which means that just as Jesus suffered just as Jesus was humble in this life and we're conformed to that in this life, so too, just as Jesus was raised from the dead and made perfect in holiness, we too will one day be raised from the dead and made perfect in holiness, just like Jesus, our Savior. So the suffering that we experience now, united to Jesus and conformed to him, will lead ultimately to the glorification life that Jesus lives right now. So that is the good. Second, what does Paul mean by all things? All things? All things for this good of sanctification and glorification? Again, there can be confusion here. Some take Paul here to say, well, surely that doesn't include bad things, right? Surely that doesn't mean injustice. Surely that can't mean widespread drought and, and famine like the 400,000 people in Ethiopia right now. Surely that can't mean poverty and displacement by gang violence like people who are on the Mexico-U.S. border right now. Surely that can't mean like the civil war that's going on in Myanmar right now. Some say, surely all those things aren't working together for our good. God's not using those things. And again, there's just one problem with that. It's not true. It's just not true. Paul, at the end of this section in Romans chapter 8, he actually ends this on Romans chapter 11. And he has these words. This is how he closes out this entire section of Romans. He says, for from him, he's talking about Jesus, talking about God, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Everything. John Piper, I think he has the perfect words. He's actually expounding on this verse that we just read. He says, there is no doubt all things, whether positive or negative, painful or pleasurable, are by his design, sustained by him, and for his glory. See, all things means all things, positive and negative. Everything. God is using all these things in our life for the good of conforming us to Jesus in order to ultimately glorify us. 
All things are working together for our good. Now look carefully here at verse 35. Verse 35 in the main passage, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 35. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything separate us from this God who's trying to conform us to him? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Are those things for our good? What he just mentioned there? Think about it. Our culture says, well, if you're suffering persecution, that means God's against you, not for you. And distress and tribulation, if you lose your job or unfair treatment, threatening hunger or nakedness, that's not a sign God's working for your good. That's not a blessed life, hashtag blessed. If you're facing death, that can't be good for you, right? Death is an enemy of God. But Paul says, no, verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, right, positive and negative, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, God will use all of these things to conform us to the image of his Son, the ultimate good. And as I'm going to close, I just want to give a perfect Bible example of this. There's a story of Joseph. If you know this story, it's in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Joseph was the obnoxious younger brother of 11 older brothers. His older brothers hated him. In fact, that's what the Bible says. It says that his brothers hated Joseph and the dreams that he would have of one day Joseph being kind of this supreme ruler over all the earth and all of his brothers and even his mom and dad coming and bowing down before him. So out of jealousy and out of contempt for their brother, his 11 brothers take him, throw him into a pit and decide, well, we can actually make a profit off of this. So instead of leaving him here for dead, let's sell him into the hands of slave traders that are on their way to Egypt. And so they do that very thing. They hand him off to slave traders who bring him down to Egypt, where Joseph is bought by a man named Potiphar, who's a helper to Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt. And he has very tedious jobs. He wipes floors. He shines statues. But then all of a sudden, Potiphar realizes that Joseph's an educated man and that he can actually help him advance. So Joseph gets brought to this exalted status where, in the course of being exalted in Potiphar's house, he's tempted to sin by sleeping with Potiphar's wife who wants to seduce him. He resists, breaks away from her, and she says that he was the one who tried to sleep with her. So Joseph is thrown into prison and is left there for years and years and years until finally one day he gets out because he reads the dream of a man who is in prison with him and he's elevated again as number two over all of Egypt. And there's this great famine over the land of Egypt and all of the known world at that time had to come to Egypt in order to receive grain, to receive food, which Joseph had wisely stored up in these storehouses in Egypt. And who comes along dozens of years later but his brothers to come and receive grain from his very hand. And what do they do? They bow down to Joseph, begging and pleading that he would help sustain them. And finally, after they realize that this is Joseph, this is our brother who we sold into slavery, and they're fearful that Joseph is actually going to cut off their heads to get back at them, 
we're told that Joseph said these words. As for you, talking about his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, God used the jealousy, the deceit, the evil of Joseph's brothers, the greed and exploitation of slave traders, the lies and sensuality of Potiphar's wife, all of this evil meant to be unleashed on Joseph for his downfall meant the good and the saving of the entire known world. We don't know how this happens, do we? How can God take evil things and turn them into good, especially in our lives and in our brokenness? Well, it's a lot like brownies. Right? You take oil, you take eggs, you take the batter, you mix them together, you take all those things, and you don't know how it works, but you put it in an oven at 350 for 45 minutes, and somehow it comes out exceedingly good. Right? If you just drink oil by itself, you'll be nauseous. You take two eggs in the morning, you'll be nauseous. Even the mix, you think the mix would be good, but it's actually, if it doesn't have anything mixed with it, it's very bitter and it's very dry. So we don't know how these things happen, but God does use evil and he allows evil to accomplish what he loves, your ultimate good and glorification. I'm gonna close with this story, last story. It's a friend of mine, his name is Justin Chapel. He's actually a pastor up in Lafayette. Uh, so he's in our, our presbytery. And Justin uh, and his wife battle infertility. They've actually been infertile for nearly a decade. And they've tried to adopt children now for close to eight years, just in this struggle to try and have a kid. It's very painful for them. And probably six months ago, they got a call from an adoption agency, one that they'd been working with for some time, and they were told, you're gonna get a baby girl. There's a, a family who lives in the Midwest, and. She's having a daughter and uh, she's gonna put it up for adoption. She's actually chosen you. She's chosen you to be uh, their parents. And he told us, this was just a couple months ago, he was told that weeks before uh, she was supposed to have the baby and he was supposed to pick up his new baby daughter, the adoption agency called and said, uh, the mom has decided to keep the baby. Which meant that they were back to the same old song and dance of working with the adoption agency to try and get a new baby. And of course, his question in that was why? Why? Why all this suffering? Why all this heartache? Why does this keep happening to us? And he needed this reminder. And that's why Paul writes this reminder that we know that no matter what happens in our life, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And we know that that's true because even in the most heinous evil that was ever committed in the entire world, the killing of God's son, God used that to accomplish the ultimate good of taking sinners like us and bringing them into his family. That's our hope and that's our home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do know these things, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to your purpose, for those who love you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has saved us by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit has called us into relationship with you. And we, God, we thank you that we get to celebrate this week in and week out, even in the weakness and the hardship that goes on in our life. God, I do pray for those who are suffering this morning. I pray for those who are suffering with infertility. 
those who have experienced the pain of miscarriage, those who are single and longing for a spouse, those who are married and walking in a really hard season of marriage. And God, I pray that you would meet them by your spirit and encourage them with these words. Would you help them to pray with groanings too deep for words according to your will? And would you encourage them with what we know? That even though we can't see it and we don't understand it, you are making all things exceedingly good, conforming us to your Son and ultimately glorifying us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, your Son, our King. Amen. Mm -hmm.